Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. I hope you've all been well. This is our second lockdown edition of State of the Theory. Um, once again, we are doing this via Zoom. Hannah's remote, as it were. Yes. Does it still feel weird to do this remotely, Hannah? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's not ideal. No. Um, I hope our sound quality is at least adequate. We know it's not as good as it normally is, uh, but but hopefully, hopefully you can you can understand, uh, uh, especially what Hannah says. Um, okay, so what are we talking about today? Uh, this is part two of our discussion about uh, race and race in education. Uh, Last week, we talked about universities and higher education, particularly in the U.S. Um, An update on that, just after we recorded, Oriel College did say that they wish to uh, bring Rhodes down from his spot, from his plinth. Um, stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, that was uh, that was uh, start of progress. I guess is one way to to think about it. Um, so to today we are continuing on from that, and today we're going to be focusing on schools specifically and uh, schools. Uh, principally in in Britain and America, that's historically that's the the focus uh, uh, in terms of uh, particular trajectories. But we like to think that some of what we have to say will be applicable uh, wider than that. And we are interested in the in the relationship schools and uh, and sort of the primary and secondary education system has with uh, societal inequalities whether it's to do with race and uh, or, or class, uh, the ways in which society is sort of geographically segregated uh, along racial and class lines, and the ways in which at various points in time schools are seen to reinforce that segregation or seen to challenge that segregation, and therefore the relationship schools have with progress when it comes to, when it comes to inequality, right? Yes. Yes. Which which continent should we start on? Shall we start with America? Well, because it, it is sort of the flagship yes. uh, case study in terms of um, segregated education um, when we think about this. I mean, the I think most of our listeners will at least be somewhat familiar with the kind of mainstream telling of the, the history of U.S. education in the 20th century, um, especially around race and racism. Schools, as all public institutions were in the United States, were segregated. Um, And, of course, this was uh, a really, really important part of maintaining 
um, American white supremacy in the post-Civil War South um, and across the United States. Segregation was enshrined in U.S. law for many, many decades um, and was designed specifically to replace enslavement as the system by which Black Americans were oppressed and marginalized and kept from achieving um, economic and political autonomy and independence uh, in the U.S. So uh, if you're not familiar with segregation, I hope you are. Um, And schools, of course, were a battleground for desegregation, um, a really important, prominent battleground for desegregation. Um, You know, some of the classic theorists of education tell us that traditionally the schools and and certainly state-funded schools are an arm of the state, they're a wing of the state. So if you have a white supremacist state, schools fit right into a kind of suite of institutions that work to produce fascism or produce democracy or produce capitalism or produce socialism, whatever it is. Um, And uh, a couple of really important landmark moments in U.S. history came about as part of kind of intervening in the school system. Um, very famously, uh, Brown v. Board of Education was the kind of landmark Supreme Court case that desegregated or integrated, depending on um, where you sit, uh, public schools in the United States. The Supreme Court ruled that uh, state laws could not create segregated school systems. So you couldn't say that black children had to attend certain schools and that white children had to attend certain other schools. Um, You had to make education at each institution available equally to all students. Um, And this was part of a kind of wider civil rights program. um, And of course, the very famous you know, uh, passage of laws around civil rights gets passed in 1965 in the United States. And this is a sort of standard story. You know, white people are moving towards being less racist. Um, Black activists in the U.S. after decades of uh, hard work, um, especially, you know, nonviolent work, um, are moving towards success. And they meet in the middle in 1965 um, bada boom, bada bing, racism is solved, except for a couple of, uh, you know, bad apples, a couple of extreme cases, a couple of outlier examples. But after 1965, uh, schools are integrated and black kids and white kids can hold hands and sing songs together. This is the kind of like liberal story. And it's now one that conservatives trot out, um, especially now. Um, And I think what we want to talk about today is how that story is bullshit. (laughs) And most of our listeners will be familiar either personally from their own experiences or from their educational backgrounds will be familiar with why that story is bullshit. Um, But I think one of the things we want to do is talk about how in Britain, that story is actually mirrored more closely than a lot of British people like to think. Um, Yeah. Uh, Before we go to Britain, though, do you want to say a bit more about race in your school experience because we were talking a bit about that before we turned the machine on uh and the ways in which your school district gets renamed as an attempt to ameliorate racial inequalities and how that works oh out. yeah 
this. I hope this doesn't get me in trouble. Um, so I, I assume that most, most people I know from school don't listen to the podcast, but if you're familiar with this story, apologies in advance if I misrepresent your views. Um, I, I grew up in, we've talked about our backgrounds before, uh, for those who are joining late, I grew up in a suburb of San Francisco in the San Francisco Bay Area um, as a kind of metropolitan unit. It's an extremely diverse place, but also as a kind of a sociological case study, it's an extremely unequal place. Um, and, and it's becoming even more unequal, uh, probably as we speak. And I grew up in a very, very white part of the Bay Area. Obviously, I'm super white. And I went to public school for British listeners. That means state-funded school, not privately funded school, uh, at schools near my house. I could walk to both of my schools um, from about age six to about age 14. Uh, And all my friends lived nearby. So we were within bike riding distance of each other. Um, and everybody I knew, went, we all went to the same school. And it was a really suburban setting. Um, and all the other schools around, California is a mess of school districts. So there, were, there are lots of different school districts in my county. So even within my county, there's, there's kind of hierarchies and, and inequalities. But I went to a little school district that until recently was called the Dixie School District. And the Dixie School District uh, dates to like the early 20th century, something like that. There's an old, they have an old one-room schoolhouse that they've preserved on the grounds of the middle school. So it's like, it's this little white tiny schoolhouse that you can go visit. And it's like a little mini museum. And it's called the Dixie, well, I don't know if it's called the Dixie Schoolhouse anymore. Maybe it's, I don't know, the schoolhouse formerly called Dixie. But it's a... It's been for decades a kind of debate about the name of the school district. Where does it come from? Is it racist? Was it explicitly named for the Confederacy or is it a coincidence? There isn't much in the way of the historical record to indicate, but you can assume that if it was named by a white dude in the early 20th century, he was probably at least a little bit super racist. So there's been a kind of And it it kind of ebbed and flowed, and there's been debates about renaming the Dixie School District. My take is that when I was a student there, it was always like, cool, yeah, rename it. But like, we budget cuts have meant that we've lost resources and we've lost teachers and class sizes are getting bigger and we have to do more and more standardized tests. You know, like, you can rename the school. But most of the kids around me are white. All the teachers are white. And we have less money every year for stuff. Like, you know, I, it, it, and it felt like a kind of veneer to hide a series of more systemic problems. As I got older, it got, I realized it was actually a fuck ton worse than that. Um, and that actually, the Bay Area was extremely segregated um, for socioeconomic and racial reasons. And the school district that I went to was predominantly white 
for really racist reasons because of white flight out of urban centers, in this case, San Francisco, um, because white middle class people after the war are moving outwards out of the city and leaving um, leaving urban centers. Um, and so property taxes are dropping. Um, and African-American communities now, you know, diverse black communities and communities of color are left with crumbling public infrastructures because white people are privatizing their resources out in the suburbs. And I am a legacy of that history, right? I grew up in one of these white suburbs. And the Dixie School District eventually last year changed its name. It's no longer known as the Dixie School District. Um, it's now called the Miller Creek School District. Um, I don't know who Miller was, but I assume he was super racist himself. Um, but, you know, it's not a, a kind of direct reference to the Confederacy. But the school itself hasn't changed. I mean, in terms of its, in Britain, they call it a catchment area. Um, in the U.S., you know, we have kind of district boundaries and district lines and your address determines where you go to school. And, you know, the, the people that live in Marin tend to vote against uh, laws and um, particularly tax laws that would either reintegrate Marin County or would allow for public transportation or affordable housing um, in a sort of not in my backyard way. Um, they're interested in, in maintaining their property values. And that's a fundamentally racist position. And so the school district remains predominantly white. Um, they can, you know, be very proud of themselves that um, they got on board with a woke agenda that they're not sending their kids to the Dixie school district anymore. But in terms of actual structural change, not much has changed at all. Um, and when it came time for me to express my opinion as an alum of the Dix, the former district or the former Dixie district, I said this, I was like, you know, I, you know, change a name, but I hope that this comes with a recognition that the schools themselves are still super white for reasons. And um, yeah, stay tuned. That's the story of my white suburban childhood. So if we then connect that connect the wider story of America and the story of your white suburban childhood to the sort of parallel British system, which has interesting similarities and, and some divergences. But uh, I guess the similarities are more, more interesting to us, partly because Britain still likes to think of racial segregation as an American problem as opposed to a British problem, uh, mm -hmm. uh, which, which uh, affects the way certain stories are remembered and certain stories are forgotten. So um, this is a, a, a very quick sort of second half of 20th century whistle-stop history of uh, the British state-funded school system. So in 1944, Britain passes the, the Education Act, uh, which really is perhaps the most significant leap ever towards a kind of comprehensive education system that uh, that doesn't depend on your family's finances, as it were. And one of the things that that Act does is it sets up what's called a tripartite system. So you have, 
it didn't quite work out in practice along these lines, but the idea was that there'd be three categories of schools. There'd be the grammar school at the top, then secondary, modern, and then technical schools. And you had an exam called 11 plus. So at age 11, all students were supposed to take an exam. The, the students who did the best would go to grammar school and would be headed for sort of a university education and a kind of academic slash professional uh, sort of profession, as it were, to use the, the slightly old-fashioned meaning of that word. Yeah, by the way, yeah. to an American, this is like, oh, Harry Potter super classes. Yes, yeah, basically. <laughs> um, and then the the middle group, in, in terms of the students who were in the middle of the exam, or, or in terms of their 11-plus results, would go to a secondary modern school, and then there would be, at the bottom, students who were deemed to be not academic enough would go to technical school to develop technical vocational skills. Um, in other words, your future gets decided for you aged 11. Um, the logic of that was that this was going to create a meritocracy, sort of not unlike the university uh, tuition lack of tuition fees and student grants that we were talking about last week, the idea that we are going to use a publicly funded education system to replace a... Uh, uh, a system of sort of oligarchy, a system of uh, uh, hierarchy based on wealth towards a system of meritocracy where we are rewarding students for their skills and and ability and intelligence, uh, whatever their financial background is. Um, And then through the 60s and 70s, you have increasing immigration uh, specifically from the ex-colonies, so South Asia, the Caribbean, uh, and, and so on. And for very understandable reasons, in a, in, a very, in a very racist country, these immigrants wanted to live close together. They wanted to, li- to make a community where they, you know, they shared stories and origins and commonality of experiences and so on. And this was deemed to be threatening to the B- British fabric of life. So for much of the 60s and 70s, pockets of the country which were seen to be areas of high immigration, uh, kids were bussed out of their local school districts or catchment areas to go to uh, go to a different school in order to balance out uh, the racial population of the schools. Uh, of course, white children weren't bussed out uh, in the in the 60s and 70s. White children, busing of white children, did happen. Uh, much later in the in the first years of the 21st century there were some high profile riots in the lancashire town of oldham for example and again uh the the uh the problem identified as the cause of of the riots wasn't structural racism but was segregation and and the the liberal white argument of needing to to desegregate meant that students were bussed in different directions to balance out uh student populations um, through the 70s into the 80s, there was a general recognition that of the classist uh, implications of the, the 11 plus, and the 11 plus gets slowly phased out. And instead of having grammar schools and secondary modern schools, you now have comprehensive schools where, again, the argument is whoever you are, whatever your background, you go to your local school and all all kids go to the 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 local school and the schools get schools the the population is divided up into catchment areas school districts in america and 
um, you you go to the nearest school to you, depending on what what catchment area you are from. Of course, as you you alluded to in your outline of uh, of the American school system, capitalism finds a way to carry on being capitalist. So um, so whether you do a meritocratic eleven plus system or whether you do uh, a comprehensive education system, you are still having selection. And instead of an 11 plus exam selection, where uh, really problematic notions of intelligence at age 11 are used to, 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 to select, instead you have selection by house prices. So uh, as of 2019, uh, schools that are rated outstanding, the average price of a house within the catchment area of a school with an outstanding rating is 13.2% higher than the cost of a home near a school with a rating of good um, uh, and 31% higher than the next uh, rating, which is requires improvement. So uh, we are back to a situation where you can only afford to go to a good school if you are well off because that's how you get to go to a school by buying a house in the in the local community and i guess the 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 wider more general point that that we uh, would like to make here following on from our previous episode last week is that the the reform and tinkering with the edges of the school system whether it is to do with racial segregation whether it is to do with uh class segregation sort of misses the point because we are reforming an institution, we are reforming uh, an industry against what it was originally intended to be. Um, uh, in terms of critical theorists, if we look at uh, uh, people like Louis Althusser, who, who spoke about the institutional, uh, <coughs> sorry, the ideological state apparatus um, as, a, as, an, as a, a, a technology that is designed to uh, reproduce social inequalities. If we look at at someone like Michel Foucault, who we speak about all the time on this podcast, who who talks about schools as at the education system as part of a of a, a, a of an example of the way in which the society is carceral to regulate and discipline bodies uh, uh, to to um, uh, to similarly enhance. Uh, uh, particular examples of inequality. That is what the schools are supposed to do. That is what the schools were designed to do. Uh, and whichever way you slice it, as it were, the the public education system carries on doing what it was designed to do uh, uh, to service the needs of capitalism, right? Yeah, well, in the, in the capitalist state. Yes, um, because the the state as the kind of arbiter of the rules of capitalism provides labor. And th- th- this is the one thing that the state is quite good at is creating its citizens and creating a labor force that is like diverse enough in its skills and populous enough that it can reproduce itself. And can then be put to work for this, the service of, or in service of the capitalist economy within the state. And uh, obviously it uses a lot of language, and certainly in Britain and the United States uses a lot of language of, of the nation in order to 
uh, gain support or to normalize the way that the education system works. Um, and it, it appeals to that kind of emotional identity. Um, but what's interesting, and of course, what, what Foucault gives us and what is kind of extended upon by people like Bell Hooks um, and Paulo Freire is the, the knowledge that with conduct of the individual comes counterconduct, which always, you know, the, it's, the state is never able to fully achieve its goals here, just as capitalism is nev never able to fully, um, like, capitalize labor. What's the language that Marx uses to talk about this, that it's never able to, to fully commodify labor? Yeah. Um, the, the state is never able to fully discipline students. And so using that concept, uh, educators for kind of radical means, educators for justice and for liberation say that, that the education system can be wielded as a tool for liberation. And so there are really interesting and important theoretical interventions here, um, thinking about how education can be reimagined and redesigned. But a lot of that, a lot of those interventions take place at the grassroots level, by which I mean in the space of the classroom. They don't necessarily take place particularly well at the, at the scale of policy or at the scale of the school district, that they tend to take place at the classroom level, which I think is why you, we had a lot of white people in responses to your question say, I had one black teacher, but they were really important. And I had, and it's, it's a kind of a, a sort of expectation that black teachers are exceptional, but it is also the, the immediate jarring impact for a white kid who's used to seeing authority embodied in white bodies and particularly white men, seeing authority embodied by a black teacher is fundamentally radical to them which, in a white supremacist system. Which is why the white supremacist capitalist system works so hard to regulate who gets into that room. Right. Mm -hmm. the, the point you made about the you know, Foucault says where there's power, there's resistance, right? So the space of the classroom is at once a space of regulation, but also a space of, of resistance, right? You, the, 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 the ideas that, that are allowed to circulate within a room uh, are ideas that, that may well help to challenge or question the logic of the system itself. But it can only do that if, the the those ideas are matched up with a diversity of lived experience of the people who are allowed to be in that room, both in terms mm -hmm. of staff and students. Um, and going back to uh, the the example you used of your school district, um, I guess one way to think about it would be to say what proportion of the staff and students were people who felt good about the fact that they they were now 
part of a school district that wasn't named after the confederacy and mm-hmm. what part of this and what proportion of the staff and students were people who could talk about the pain of having to go to a school named mm-hmm. after the confederacy do you see what i mean like that that difference yes. is crucial right and that yes. that's that's also where the you know the the roads must fall statue or the edward colson statue in bristol that's what it comes back to right the the importance of combining ideas of decolonizing and ideas of anti-colonial anti-racist resistance being part of your education on a on a kind of intellectual political level and the importance of combining that with the visceral sort of gut reaction pain of having to walk around a space which is dedicated to people who enslaved your ancestors mm-hmm. and if you if you don't match those two up then then the decolonizing project will always be superficial intellectual yeah. yeah and it remains intellectual yeah and if if you and i were to talk about why we spend our days pretending to be intellectual or actively trying to be intellectual the point is not for intellectualism's sake the point is to think about and actually intervene at lived experience level and it in a sense if it's just superficial it's not just superficial it allows white supremacy to remain embedded as a kind of kernel in the minds of liberal white people you know martin luther king's moderate white person that any and all other types of behavior and benefiting from structural white supremacy are in a sense justified or less problematic depending on who you are depending on how you how you frame this stuff but it always comes back to in the end your position remains the same as a white person but you get to feel better because you know better Yeah you 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 feel good about feeling bad right you 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 are yeah. you are taught you are taught about the bad things that happened and often it's it's you are taught about the bad things that happened in a previous time right because the liberal narrative is is of course a narrative of progress right like slavery happened and then was abolished and aren't we good because we felt bad about slavery and we abolished yeah. it um but that the the gap that always exists and it's a gap that you know both of us teach race in a space that is very white you know for in both of our our uh, employing institutions as it were both of our university spaces the students that we teach are overwhelmingly white mm-hmm. um and 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 to say that is not to say that it isn't important to teach race to white people of course it is but there you 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 there is always a sort of gap of understanding or a gap mm-hmm. of emotion i guess because um you don't you can't convey why this matters yeah i remember i rem- this is a, a very specific uh memory i have of teaching 
in Cardiff where I did my PhD and there was a class on race and uh, racism and we were talking about Islamophobia. And it was really interesting the fact that I could say to my students who were all white that, you know that pub that you go to next to the university, I got called a suicide bomber in that pub. And you could see them sit up and take notice, right? Because they were suddenly forced to look at the lived experience of the spaces around them differently uh, in a way that I don't think I could have got through had I been white, had I not had that experience. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember at one point you were talking about, I think at college you had a Dalit activist come in and speak to you. Do you want to say a bit about that? Because I think that was something similar there, right? Yeah, so... um... I mean, we were so one of the things we were talking about before we started recording these episodes was how and and I don't want to spend too much time dwelling on the experience of white people because it's it is, you know, everywhere. Um, But it's I think it's one of the things that that when white people speak to each other about about issues around racism and their own racism, they miss out the complexity of how white supremacy works inside them. So like, because we don't ever really need to talk about it and like unpack it or, or think about the, the, the minute kind of steps of a thought process or an emotional response about all the different things that are going on. And what it all kind of amounts to is, is an inability to see or understand or grasp the complexity of what's going on. So both inside you, but also in terms of other people's experiences. So it's, it is straight up invisible. Like it's, it's, it's not, it's not, it's a difficult experience to describe to people who live in a racist society and people who are people of color because, because it is a fundamentally white thing. But we were talking about this because, um, the, the Dalit activist who came to speak to us, he came to speak to us in the context of a course called an advanced course called Judaism and Christianity in South Asia. And the idea was to think about religious minorities as in a kind of pluralistic way in South Asia. Um, and also to think about different, it was quite complex because of course, when we think about religious minorities in South Asia, we often think of Islam and Muslims, um, which is prominent right now because of the right-wing Hindu nationalist government. But there's a really uh, interesting story around colonialism and post-colonialism in South Asia um, around religious practice and spirituality that isn't Muslim or Hindu. And this Dalit activist was part of a conversion movement. A number of Dalits, large number of Dalits converted to Christianity um, as part of uh, a, a theology called liberation theology. And it's not just Dalits who've, who've converted. Liberation theology has a number of different forms. Um, it also exists in, um, and I think it comes out of South America. Um, so it's a transnational movement. And he came and spoke to us about, he, he kind of answered questions and stuff, but he's a pastor and and an activist in New York. And 
he was speaking to primarily students of South Asian studies. So people who are familiar with either because they practice or themselves Hindu or have studied Hinduism for a number of years. And he was talking about how a lot of Hindus, especially kind of liberal or progressive Hindus, um, people who work to reform Hinduism and who are involved in um, kind of progressive movements in South Asia or in diaspora, you know, say to him, is there anything that Hindus could do or that Hinduism could do that would, that would allow you to feel comfortable reconverting, becoming a Hindu again? And he said unequivocally, no, absolutely not. There's no way I could ever be a Hindu because Hinduism exists solely for the purpose of creating a, hi- a caste hierarchy that makes me Dalit. Even if Hinduism reformed itself and, and excised the language of caste from itself, it, it couldn't ever do that because the, the system requires me to exist. Which is, which is what Ambedkar argues in The Annihilation of Caste, right? That there's, we exactly. can't talk about reforming Hinduism, we need to destroy it. Yes, yes. exactly. Um, and, and Dalit conversion is, has a history, quite an interesting um, and complicated history. Um, but Christian liberation theology is a really interesting manifestation. It was one of my first encounters with the concept of a, a system, a social and spiritual and cultural system that is built specifically on the promise to a dominant group of people that another marginalized group of people need to be and are fundamentally deserving of being marginalized and oppressed. And white supremacy works in the same, not in an equivalent way, but has a similar effect. And whiteness exists in opposition to, you know, it, it exists because of and for the continued marginalization, oppression and violence against the other, you know, people of color and specifically black people. And, and sorry, yeah. go on. no, 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 go ahead. No. I was just going to say, I, I don't know if you would have been able to make that analysis to do the work that is required to come to that realization. Had you not been exposed to someone who had experienced it at that bodily visceral gut level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in the way, so the, yeah, so the way that he framed it, and it went alongside, right, because I've, I've read Ambedkar, and at the time I had far more kind of understanding of Ambedkar because um, he was part of the curriculum. And so it sat alongside a wider educational program where most of the people that were teaching me were South Asian. Uh, most of the literature I was reading was written by South Asians or by Arabic scholars. And half of the people in my classes were South Asian diaspora students. And the plus I was learning Hindi and Urdu at the same time, which I highly recommend if you're learning about Hinduism. <laughs> to also study a language from South Asia because it does, it starts to make sense. And it, and it was a really important intervention because of course, most of the people who were teaching me were from caste privileged backgrounds, for example, or were from class privileged backgrounds. And 
there were very few, I mean, I don't even remember meeting another person who identified themselves as a Dalit to me um, or being from a scheduled caste background. I mean, I just, I mean, it's structural, right? Mm. And it is really, I mean, and I think, yeah, it's that process that white people went through to respond to your question to say, yeah, I had a black teacher and they taught me this. Yeah. And and you you as as teachers ourselves, you see the effect of this when you have a student of color or you have a student who is who has come from a marginalized background of some other description, whether it's race or class or sexuality or whatever, and is prepared to speak up about their experiences. You can see the the space of the classroom changes, right? The you see mm-hmm. the other students act differently and the ide- different kinds of ideas and questions circulate around the room uh, than would be possible otherwise. Yeah. Yes. But it's also, I mean, it, re- it requires, because it, it's a double-edged sword, because it requires sacrifice on the part of students of color. Yes. And it requires, and, and I think too, I mean, we talk about this sort of expectation, you use the the phrase are prepared to um because one of the challenges i think for educators we have to create the space in which students feel safe enough to do it but that also don't feel expected yeah yes. and that is that double-edged sword is really really difficult to to navigate and get right um and students i mean in my experience they always 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 rise to the occasion and do far more than I think they need to um, or should be expected to. Which is one reason I think as important, it is It is important to have staff of colour and students of colour, but I mm-hmm. think it is important for different reasons. Yeah. Right? Like if you have more members of faculty who are of colour, then the power dynamic changes as mm-hmm. opposed to uh, doesn't matter how sympathetic, supportive, you are as a white member of staff even approaching a person of color to ask them to speak about their experiences immediately changes the power dynamic in a way yeah. that to to undo that power dynamic you the only way to do that would be to have more educators of color yeah uh, yeah and that it, i mean it it taps into so and this is how the kind of different scales work together and how capitalism works especially well at the bigger scales. It does its job quite well because it's able to control the numbers of educators of color in the classroom. It's able to manipulate other aspects of identity. So it's able to, and and this is where affirmative action, we were talking last week about affirmative action, where affirmative action is unable to affect structural change of the kind that we would think of as being ideal because it creates divisions in terms of class and opportunity and educational privilege within communities of color in order to continue to control access. And, you know, education reform in the U.S. has, you know, I need to be really careful what I say about this because I have, a, there's a lot of really wonderful educators I know who've spent time in education reform. But overall, education reform in the U.S. relies on, 
relies on on fundamental assumptions about higher education and educational opportunity and, and classism and um, rewards rewards um, certain kinds of conduct and behavior over others that are quite racist and um, ed reform is really frustrating for that reason and and um, really problematic. I mean, for many reasons, but that is one key reason um, that in terms of of reforming an education system that is built on built on exclusivity and elitism, um, it's really ineffective. Yeah, and and you know, as necessary as education reform is, and as wonderful as a lot of the work. That has that has already been done, as you as you alluded to. All of that work is important and necessary. I guess our position is to recognize that the reform we do is reforming an institution against what it was originally intended to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So you are you are always having to do against the grain work, which is why it's yeah. hard. Right. That 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 the 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 point of this education system has always been to exclude certain types of people, to include other types of people, and to determine what someone's future is based on who they are and where they're from. Yeah. That is, and to, to provide everyone the tools necessary to, to prepare them for that future that has already been defined, determined for them. Yes. Yeah. I think that's probably a good point to end. Yeah. Um, I hope this this two parter on on race and education has been of interest. Um, let us know. Let us know if you disagree with us. We don't often get people disagreeing with us, and I think we both both enjoy that. So, so let us know. <laughs> <laughs> or tell us your stories about education. Yeah, tell us your stories. Um, uh, rate us, review us wherever you wherever you access us, as it were. And uh, yeah, stay safe. Look after yourselves. Look after those around you, and we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Richaudhry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Well